today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome back to the Avenus History Podcast. This is the Color Line Part 10. Now, last time on the Color Line, which was, I think that came out in January of this year, 2023, we talked about Black Adventists in World War II. We talked about Brown v. Board of Education. We talked about desegregating Southern Adventist University and Adventist involvement in the civil rights movement. So, you know, we didn't have much to talk about. Now, this is, as I said, episode 10 of the Color Line series. And as I have mentioned in the last so many episodes, we are in the last 12 months of episodes in season two. And so that means this is also the final episode in the Color Line series. There is going to be no episode 11. So if you'll permit me just a moment of nostalgia, I just want to mention that the first Color Line episode was released in August 2017. So it's been nearly six years of Color Line episodes. Whew. What a journey. And it ends right now. Okay. So the 1970 General Conference session was held in Atlantic City, New Jersey, a city best known for casinos and also as the inspiration for the yellow properties on the Monopoly board. That is Marvin Gardens, Atlantic, and Ventnor. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I always just called it Ventor. And I clearly missed that second N in there all of these years playing Monopoly. So I apologize to, uh, well, you people who live in Atlantic City. Anyways, re-elected for a second term, General Conference President Robert Pearson gave an impassioned plea for his Sabbath sermon. Of course, he inveighed against liberalism. Pearson urged all the church members to speak with one voice. Quote, let us explore the frontier of new truth without discarding the basics of old truth. End quote. Pearson also doubled down on the importance of apocalyptic Adventism. Quote, to preach the last day message is the very reason for our existence. We are not here merely as another church, end quote. To his warnings against liberalism and the desire for Adventists to remain, well, Adventist, Pearson added another call, quote, in the heart of Jesus, no prejudice, bigotry, suspicion, or retaliation ever existed. So it must be today with his people, end quote. Prejudiced, bigotry, suspicion, in the church? What was President Pearson getting at? Well, he went on. Quote, we are all parts of each other. Nationality, tribal, racial, generation, education, credibility gaps must go. The world must know that Seventh-day Adventists are different. They are united. The gaps, by God's grace, have been closed. Seventh-day Adventists must be a spectacle to the world of what God's grace can do to unite people. End quote. Now, the very same Sabbath in which Pearson is calling for the unity of the church and an end to racism and prejudice and all of that, well, a group of black lay members were submitting a list of grievances to the church. And far from having closed the gap, one of those laymen, Donald Morgan, said that, quote, the Seventh-day Adventist is the most racially segregated of any religion except the Mormons, end quote. Boy, <laughs> Oh, the Mormons. If Morgan's group called the International Layman Action Committee for Concerned Adventists, all of these things just roll off the tongue, you know. 
Well, if they failed to gain a hearing at the GC session, then a protest was planned for Sunday. But some protesters crowded into the convention hall lobby on Sabbath morning, carrying signs like, Wishful thinking evades unpleasant truths. Now, I say that they crowded into the convention center, but I don't really know for sure. A local newspaper account says there were 300 protesters. A church official corrected that and said there were only three. Now, look, I know it's hard to estimate crowd size. Uh, you couldn't get me to tell the difference between 30,000 and 40,000 people, okay? But I feel confident that most people could tell the difference between three and 300. Which is it? Okay, okay. There weren't 300 protesters. The same newspaper later revised their estimates down to approximately 15. Well, this suggests that the real number obviously was closer to three than 300. And with tens of thousands of Adventists moving about the convention center, I can see how a newspaper might radically mistake who the protesters are as large groups of people are moving about. Still, a protest at the general conference session is huge and hugely embarrassing to church leaders. So what happened? Well, to understand this protest and what's going on in the era, we have to go back one year. In the color line part nine, I talked about Frank Hale's Layman's Leadership Conference and their protest at the 1962 GC session. In that case, Hale was upset that HMS Richards and his ministry, The Voice of Prophecy, had invited the segregationist governor, George Wallace, to read the Bible. Well, it was that, among other things. The basic tone of the LLC group was that it represented black Adventists who were sick and tired of waiting for justice. Whether Hale's protest is responsible for the outcome or not, the result was that Hale was made president of Oakwood, and another black Adventist, Frank Peterson, was made General Conference Vice President, the first African-American to hold that role. Now, in 1969, Black Adventist leaders met at the Biscayne Terrace Hotel in Miami, Florida, as part of the quadrennial meeting of the regional department of the General Conference. Let me just pause and talk about this word, regional, before I go on. In case you don't know, regional here is a perfectly obscure bureaucratic term, but it stands in for the word Black. So you're going to find people saying black conferences and you're going to find people saying regional conferences. And while they're talking about the same thing, the regional department at the uh, in the church used to be called the colored department. But in the interest of strict accuracy, I just want to say even in regional conferences, there are Korean congregations, there are Hispanic congregations and there are white congregations. Still call them regional conference because they tend to cover a larger bit of territory than state conferences, like the Illinois Conference or the Michigan Conference, while the Lake Region Conference basically covers the entire territory of the Lake Union. Actually, it covers a little bit more territory, if I'm not mistaken. And so they're called regional conferences as opposed to state conferences. In any case, the leaders who gathered in Miami did all of the things that you would do at such a meeting. You share stories. You reconnect with people socially. You seek counsel about problems you're, you're having, right? You network. You do all these things. But those gathered also voted to ask the general conference to study the possibility of creating regional unions. Now, if you remember how the Adventist hierarchy works, there are local churches and in a state or regional conference. They belong to the conference. And then the conferences, several of them will band together and form a union. And then, of course, we have divisions like the North American Division or South American Division. Then, of course, we have the General Conference on top of 
all of that. So regional conferences were established in 1944, something we covered. And in 1944, there had been only about 17,000 Black Adventist members. And since then, that number had grown nearly five-fold. Black Adventists in 1970 comprised nearly one in six North American Adventists. To put it another way, in 1944, Black Adventists were about 3% of the membership of North America. Now they were 18%. And yet, only one in every 14 Adventist pastors were black. Worse, only one out of 100 Adventist employees were black. Clearly, regional conferences were doing their part by growing the church. But was the church providing opportunities for those black Adventists to rise through the ranks of the church like everybody else? It was natural that some might wonder about having black unions after seeing the success of black conferences. Well, how would black unions help, you might wonder. Eleven pastors made their case to Robert Pearson in a letter. But the reasons they gave in the letter were vague, at least to me. They said things like black unions would create, quote, meaningful programs responsive to the black community, and broader outlets for the utilization of administrative and evangelistic abilities and talents among black workers, end quote. You get the idea. Now, these reasons might have meant something to church administrators who speak that language and know how to read between the lines, but they required translation for the rest of us. And as I understand it, one of the major reasons for black unions was that they could better coordinate the work of black conferences. As it stands then and now, by the way, these black conferences all report to the same union as the state conferences. So in my part of the woods, we have the Michigan Conference and Indiana Conference and Wisconsin Conference and Illinois Conference, as well as the Lake Region Conference. All of these form the Lake Union. So black unions would also give, by the way, black union presidents a seat at the Union Presidents Council, which carries a lot of weight. They would also provide greater pathways for promotion of black Adventists in the church hierarchy, and so on. So the case for black unions was on. 92 members sat on the commission, 71 were black, 21 were white, and at the end of the day, they all voted to courageously table the motion to recommend the formation of two black unions, which, for those who don't speak the parliamentary language of heaven, that means the issue was set aside to be taken up another day. The General Conference wanted to study alternatives. They basically said, we hear your complaints, we, we see what grieves you, but maybe there's another way to address what you're wanting without fundamentally adding another layer to the church hierarchy. Right? Is there a way that we can meet your needs without restructuring the church? And so the alternative to black unions became known as the 16-point document. It's actually called regional conferences in human relations, but there were 16 points in it, became known as the 16 points. Well, the 16 points were approved by a nearly two-thirds majority, and they offered a few concrete proposals. The document recommended, for instance, that the baptismal vow be altered to emphasize that when baptized, the person, quote, regardless of ethnic or social background, becomes a member of the whole family in heaven and earth, end quote. The 16 points also recommended that a biracial commission be established to hear any complaints of racism in the church. Critically, the 16 points document also looked to reorganize the church's finances. 
to address the concern for more funds in regional conferences, the 16 points recommended that 20% of the tithe money which unions received from regional conferences would be returned to those regional conferences. And down the line, 6% of the GC's funds, which they received from regional conferences, would be returned to those regional conferences as well. Now, I feel like I'm doing a lot of explaining in this episode because we're talking about church money and how that flows and church hierarchy and these layers of organization. And I want to make sure that even if you're listening and you have no idea how the Adventist church works, I want you to understand what's going on here. So I apologize. We're kind of, it's like me driving stick shift. We're, we're jumping forward and stopping, jumping forward and stopping to explain some things. So anyways, very, very briefly, let me explain the financial model of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Everything runs on tithe. Church members pay tithe to the conference. The conference keeps most of that, about 61%. They send the rest to the union. The union keeps most of that, sends the rest of the division, and then the division keeps most of that, sends the rest of the general conference. In 1969, in terms of dollar amount, we're talking about nearly $300,000 would be going back to regional conferences. Now, that's not a small amount of money, especially since Frank Hale over there at Oakwood was pleading for $1.5 million to keep the school accredited. We need to pay for training for teachers. We need scholarships. We need new buildings and facilities and all that kind of stuff. So it is a lot of money, but the need was so much greater as well. The 16 points proposed those concrete solutions, yes. But to some of the document, we might say, yes, there is some restructuring we could do to better accommodate you. But if racism exists in the church, it's not the fault of our structure or our theology, because all through the 1960s, the church had been issuing statement after statement after statement after statement, denouncing racism, promoting the equality of all people in Christ, all of that stuff. And so their idea is, look, we have so many statements on this issue. We've made ourselves abundantly clear. If racism exists, it's not the fault of our structure. It's not the fault of our theology, but it's individual human failings. And to be sure, if you come across somebody who's not giving you a job because you're black, let us know and we'll take care of them. And that's, that's basically what the 16 points was saying. The reaction to the 16 points document was mixed. Certainly there was some appreciation for what it was attempting to achieve. Certainly many black leaders appreciated that it was, it was uh, acquainting the white brethren with their needs and desires and, and their pains. But it fell short, obviously, of the, the larger structural overhaul, which proponents of the black union idea wanted to see. And as always in these things, there's always the issue of, can we trust our white brethren to follow through with what they have said in the 16 points? So you may have good ideas on paper, but how, how do we have any guarantee that you're actually going to do any of it? And yet, when the commission put black unions to a vote, at 9 p.m., um, that's a late time to have a vote, it was defeated 41 to 28. The vote exposed a rift between church administrators at the union division and GC levels and what Charles Bradford called field men, local conference workers and lay members on the front lines of the work. By his calculation, 64% of the field men voted yes for black unions, well, 85% of the administrators voted no. Bradford then said, quote, I am led to conclude that the men who serve the people, 
who are closer to the rank and file were outvoted by men who are twice removed from the field. It is regrettable that the voice of the delegates from the field was drowned out by the non-field segment, end quote. Now, there's some truth to that, of course, but it wasn't the whole story. The share of field men comprised 52% of the vote. If all the field men were voted together, black unions would have carried. But they didn't because they weren't. 36% of the field men, so to speak, voted no on the topic of black unions, and that was enough. The black union idea had failed, and it had failed in part because both black and white Adventists at that time couldn't support it. And it failed because, as I mentioned, the black Adventist community was not united on this issue as well. Now, at spring meeting in 1970, the General Conference Committee voted to accept the 16 points as an alternative to black unions. Now, some did see value in the 16 points, to be sure, but it didn't address what Calvin Rock felt were the underlying problems in the Adventist church when it came to race. Rock, for instance, believed that Christians shouldn't be singing that line from Onward Christian Soldiers, which goes, we are not divided, all one body we, at least shouldn't be able to sing it with a straight face. Rock said, quote, we are not ready because black Seventh-day Adventists cannot sit in the same pews with white Seventh-day Adventists in Mobile, Alabama. We're not ready because little black Seventh-day Adventist children cannot go to school with little white Seventh-day Adventists in Atlanta, Georgia. We're not ready because black administrators in the local conferences around the country know that there is little or no chance of vertical mobility within their respective structures. We are not ready because although blacks have almost one-third of the combined membership of the Southern Atlantic and Columbia Union conferences, we are not represented in the administrative structure of these bodies, end quote. Why is the church this way, Rock wondered. He offered five reasons why Avenus fall short. First, as he puts it, conservatism is good. He has no problem with conservatism, but the church takes it too far when it comes to what he calls human relations. Second, he said, Adventists are fundamentalists. And by that, Rock means that the church is, quote, given more to dogmatic views and authoritarian preachments that confirms our positions than to understanding principle. Many leaders and lay members spurn the refining, broadening processes of research, relying more on text than context and more on slogans than scholarship, end quote. Jesus, Rock said, was a conservative when it came to the scriptures. But on social teaching, he was a quote-unquote bold liberal. Now, the third reason Rock offers for why the Adventist church is failing in terms of race relations is eschatology. Quote, having concluded that the world is hopeless and that we shall never be able to solve all the problems of society, we have evidently decided that we do best to stay out of social problems, end quote. But more pointedly, Rock confessed, quote, Our white church leaders are ignorant of the residual effects on the black man, both of slavery and the nitty-gritty problems of survival in the black community. Many white leaders believe it is a waste of time to study these issues, much less to provide the massive reparations due the black man for past indignity suffered at the hands of the slave owner and the generations that succeeded him, end quote. Rock lamented that, the children of God have been dwarfed on the issue of race by people like John F. Kennedy, his brother Robert, Lyndon Johnson, and even Pope John the Twenty-Third, all of whom took 
in his view, a bolder and more decisive stand on the issue than the Adventist church had. Knowing that all problems cannot be fixed, the church must, Rock said, function as the moral conscience of the nation and dedicate, quote, if necessary, our very lives to the freedom and dignity of the human body and spirit, end quote. Now, Rock's fourth reason why the Adventist church struggles to heal the wound between the races is that most white members were from the middle and upper classes, those most threatened by what Rock called the mobility of the Negro. This is why many white Adventists adore Barry Goldwater, praise George Wallace, and vote for Richard Nixon. It's also why many white members believe that Martin Luther King Jr. was secretly a communist. Rock's fifth and final reason why the Adventist church struggles with race is that church leaders have every incentive not to rock the boat. They want to keep their jobs, jobs which they have spent a lifetime climbing up through the ranks of the church to finally obtain. So they want to keep those jobs, not start a revolution and risk losing them. Rock also voiced a deep frustration in the black community, the sense that they were helping to build a church that really wasn't for them. Quote, We have discovered that while our white brother was telling us to go back home and raise our in-gathering and to pray, he was busy building beautiful churches for his people, well-equipped schools for his children, and first-class homes for his family. Thus, many a black saint who was faithful in his offerings, investment, birthday, missions, week of sacrifice, 13th Sabbath, famine relief, voice prophecy, faith for today, and Loma Linda University offerings, has been buried from a third-class ramshackled church. End quote. In other words, because African Americans were giving out of a greater state of poverty per capita than their white brethren, and because they were a minority, the greater share of their offerings benefited other people in the church. And they were not even allowed until recently, at that point, to use many of the institutions like church hospitals and schools that they were helping to fund. Despite the setback, the case for black unions continued to be argued, both for and against. Frank Hale, from his perch at the head of Oakwood College, was cautious about black unions. As he saw it, the same objectives could be accomplished if unions would just adopt a fair and uniform policy of hiring and promotion, and that those unions that continue to discriminate be economically sanctioned. In other words, with the threat of sanctions, this would help bring the, the recalcitrant racists into line. But Hale was radical in other areas, in particular when it came to money. He wanted the church to pay $5.5 million in restitution to black Adventists. How would that money get spent? Well, $2 million of it would go toward helping black students get through college. $1 million would go toward those seeking master's or doctoral degrees, especially in the medical field. They wanted to see more black doctors. Another $1 million would go toward regional conferences. The rest would be divided up in a number of ways, going to schools, inner-city missions, hospitals, and even to white students who were interested in attending Oakwood. Hale was essentially saying, if we're going to desegregate Adventism, it's going to take a conscious effort. It is time, he said, quote, to have a dramatic confrontation with our consciences, end quote. E.E. E. Cleveland, on the other hand, was all for black unions. Arguing against Hale and others, Cleveland asserted that Integration of African Americans into the white-led structures of the church would mean a complete loss of autonomy and voice. Cleveland wanted 
quote, black control of their own affairs at the local and union conference levels, but integration of all departments, boards, and institutions that affect the work of the church, end quote. The debate in the black Adventist community over black unions was deep. Those who wanted black unions saw their colleagues on the other side of the issue as compromisers with the status quo, people who are holding progress back. But those who were against black unions saw their colleagues on the other side as separatists who lost sight of the ultimate goal of integration, because isn't that what the gospel demanded? In 1975, the issue of black unions returned. This issue was studied a lot more carefully this time. And in 1977, at the GC's annual council, Neil Wilson, president of the North American Division, delivered the verdict, no. Regional conference presidents, this time on board with the idea of black unions, protested. They formed the Committee of Ten, published a booklet explaining their case for black unions. Surprisingly, it worked, at least at getting the GC to put the issue back on the spring meeting agenda. The spring meeting refused to issue a verdict on it and recommended that it be taken up at the 1978 Annual Council. The Evidence Review used the very last page of its issue to print a notice that the that the issue of black unions would be decided at the annual council. I mean, they, they left it for the very end, at the very bottom of the last page. And wouldn't you believe it, but people read the last page of the review. And so some letters to the editor were published. For the next four or five months at least, they were generally supportive of black unions. One letter came from a woman who said she had a black pastor over her predominantly white congregation, and so she rejected the notion of white flight, as if, you know, if we have black leaders over white conferences, then, oh, all the white people are going to leave. She says, no, we're not leaving. We have a black pastor over a white congregation. Things are going just fine. Another person wrote, quote, the best thing white church leaders can do is to grant the reasonable request of black regional presidents, end quote. The Evidence Review also ran an article on the issue where both sides were presented. This generated another wave of letters and an explanation from the review editorial staff that they cannot possibly print them all. Calvin Rock and other supporters of black unions arrived at annual council with high hopes. They had had private conversation with others who said, yeah, you know, I'm going to change my vote. I'm with you this time. And they talked for three hours that morning, and, and many of these comments are in favor of black unions. So they felt really good about where this was heading. But then they broke for lunch. And returning from lunch, they discussed this issue again. But Neil Wilson defended his group's conclusion from the previous year that black unions were not a good idea. As Calvin Rock recalls it in his book, Protest and Progress, Neil Wilson had compromised his role in the meeting. As Rock writes, quote, General Conference President Neil C. Wilson abandoned all appearance of neutrality and, while still holding the chair, appealed to the delegates to defeat the motion, end quote. Now, this would possibly be an ethical breach of the duties of the chair, if it were true. Now, Neil Wilson wasn't the General Conference President in the autumn of 1978. Robert Pearson was. And while Pearson would subsequently announce that he was stepping down for health reasons, Wilson wasn't installed as president until January 1979. What's more, the review's account of the meeting said that Wilson took the floor. And at first, I didn't think that Wilson was really chairing this meeting because the review would go on to say that, quote, Elder Pearson led the group to a vote, end quote. 
which might suggest that Pearson was the chair. But a Washington Post article corroborates what Rock said in saying that Neil Wilson chaired the meeting. So it does seem that Wilson was chairing the meeting, but that he relinquished his chair to Pearson and let him be the chair of the meeting in order for Wilson to go make a comment from the microphone. While I can definitely understand why that rubs people the wrong way and how it could possibly prejudice the vote one way or the other, I don't know whether Wilson's comments had a chilling effect, as Rock puts it, and somehow swayed the vote away from black unions. Because, well, at the end of the vote, the vote was 190 against black unions and only 53 for black unions. If Neil Wilson's comment swayed some votes, he swayed an awful lot of votes. To me, it seems unlikely that he swayed nearly 70 votes, especially, as Rock notes, because the voting was done by secret ballot, which is how you want to do things if you fear retaliation for how you're going to vote. No one's going to know how each other are voting. So it's generally, it's supposed to be a process that's safer from intimidation. But Rock was there. I wasn't. Rock also recalls subsequent conversations with Neil Wilson, where the church leader admits that the pro-black union side might have prevailed had he not spoken out against it. And Rock said he just bit his tongue because, as a general conference vice president, he didn't think it was his place to speak out against what his boss had done. So, if Rock is right in his recollection, then Neil Wilson certainly gave himself credit for having swayed all of those votes. Whether or not he did, we will never know. Wilson, Rock notes, nevertheless retained the respect of the black Adventist community. A few weeks after the annual council meeting, with Robert Pearson having announced that he was stepping down from the presidency, Wilson chaired the committee to replace himself as vice president for North America, the job that is now the North American Division president. Wilson was to be the next GC president, and he needed to replace himself in North America. A committee of 68 people convened which included only 12 black Adventists. They came up with five names, four white, one black. And as the committee whittled down the names, they were left with two, Charles Bradford and Max Torkelson, who was a union president. See how important those union presidents are? Well, the vote wasn't even close. Torkelson got 50, Bradford got 18, which included all 12 black members of the committee. Torkelson, during lunch, happened to turn it down, however. So several committee members said, well, I guess we're just going to have to start over and find some new names. We met, we considered five names, we selected one, we voted to ask that person, and they said no, so let's start over. Well, there were some protests from the 12 black members of the committee. No, 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 no. We're not going to start over. We still have not voted on Bradford's name. Wilson stood with the black members of the committee. We have to vote on Bradford before we come up with a new list of names. It's going to be yes or no. Do you want him to be the North American Division president or not? Wilson reminded the committee of the black union vote that had just been a few weeks before, as well as the racial tension in the church. And, well, if he influenced the vote at the annual council <laughs> one way, he might have been given credit for influencing this vote the other way, because the vote went in Bradford's favor. Charles Bradford would succeed Neil Wilson and be the first person to hold the title of North American Division president. Now, Rock was happy, and he went back and told E.E. E. Cleveland, who 
was surprisingly ambivalent about the news. While Cleveland was undoubtedly happy for Bradford, he knew this meant that the cause of black unions was finally dead. Because anytime you say, we need black unions, people are going to say, you have a black division president, isn't that enough? Kelvin Rock does note that many black Adventists have subsequently occupied high positions as union presidents and, right now, our second black NAD president. But he believes it only worked out that way because of the protest which he helped to lead throughout the 1970s. How influential, how determinative of the future that Seventh-day Adventists now have were those protests throughout the 1970s? Well, we're never going to know for sure, but it's quite possible that Calvin Rock is right. It is clear over the past 10 episodes of The Color Line that nothing has ever come easy for black Adventists. This story is not finished, even if these episodes are. And it leads me to wonder what the next step might be. How can Seventh-day Adventists continue to make progress on race relations today? Are we just kind of hoping it will magically work itself out? Or that Jesus will come and save us the trouble of having to figure it out? When, in the words of Ellen White, is the Lord going to show us a better way? Or perhaps he already has. Maybe the question is, are we even still looking for a better way? Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>